Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Following My First Confessors. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April the 5th, 2015, Easter Sunday. I've been doing a lot of doctoring recently. The dentist, the optometrist, and my internist for an annual physical. Next up is the dermatologist. I've had three surgeries for basal cell carcinoma in a friend who was just diagnosed with stage 3 melanoma. As I left the doctor's office this week with instructions for two follow-up tests, I thought about Jane Kenyon's poem. It's called Otherwise. I love how she combines genuine gratitude for the present with brutal realism about the future. Listen to her poem. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All I did, all morning, I did the work I love. At noon, I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day, I know it will be otherwise. According to my doctors, I'm in good health today. Thanks be to God. But Kenyon is right. It won't always be that way. One day, I know it will be otherwise. And then what? You don't have to be religious to wonder what happens after your life succumbs to death. In his posthumous memoir called Mortality from 2012, the atheist Chris Hitchens describes how in his final days of dying from esophageal cancer, he reflected on the poetry of T.S. Eliot. Eliot writes, I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker, and I have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker, and I am afraid. After my mother died in 2006, I stood alone in front of her casket at the Thomas Funeral Home in a small town in North Carolina. I twisted my neck so that my face would parallel hers. Hot tears streaked down my cheeks. My nose ran. My vision blurred. I touched her wrist, but it was cold and stiff. Thanks to the mortician, she looked far better in death than she did in the last years of her life. A spitting image of her own mother, our family agreed. That made me feel good, and I was grateful for the comfort. But I also knew that her better-than-life appearance was a death-denying cultural contrivance, designed to dull my pain and distract my attention from the harsh reality that my mom was dead, gone. No more Saturday morning phone calls to ask her about Duke and Carolina basketball, 
No more annual visits for her May 20th birthday that coincided with Mother's Day. No more playing Scrabble in her tiny room. My mother's grandfather was a Presbyterian pastor in small town Ohio. Her own mother worshipped in that church for 79 years. Mom herself later became the organist and choir director in her own church from 1967 to 1992. So, pretty much every Sunday morning for 80 years, my mother joined Christians across the last 2,000 years and from around the world in confessing that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. I believe in the resurrection of the body and in life everlasting. In other words, the end is not the end. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in this week's epistle, This is what we preach, and this is what you believed. That's what my mother believed, and that's what I believed that January afternoon beside her casket. When my father died in 1998, he donated his body to science for medical research. Eighteen months later, FedEx delivered his cremains to our house. I remember thinking that there had to be a better way to return such a sacred gift. I opened the box, untied the twisty that secured the plastic liner, and experienced what others had described to me. These were not fluffy ashes, but rather gritty shards of bone. I took a pinch of the coarse remnants of my father and rubbed them between my thumb and finger. When I was in high school, my, my father stopped going to church. He never went back. I like to think that he lost his faith in the church as an institution, but not his faith in the gospel. That was just my conjecture, my hope, until this past Christmas when my sister sent me a newspaper clipping about Galleon, Ohio, the little town where I was born when my father was 36 years old. Galleon was celebrating its 60th anniversary presentation of Handel's Messiah. Just two months after I was born, in November, my father challenged the new choir director of the city schools to perform the Messiah. The choir director responded, If you get 75 people there for the first night of rehearsal, we'll do it. And that's what my dad did. On that first rainy November night in 1955, he kick-started a 60-year tradition. Their first performance of the Messiah in the high school auditorium had a chorus of 129 members. Today, of course, we think of Handel's Messiah as Christmas music, but it was written for Easter. Charles Jennings wrote the libretto based on the King James Bible. While Handel famously wrote the music in a 24-day period from August 22nd to September 14th, 1741. The work is divided into three parts, 
and follows the church's liturgical year, beginning with Isaiah's prophecies and ending with John's cosmic doxology in the book of Revelation. And so I now believe that the music of the Messiah was my father's confession of faith. Listen to these words from Handel's Messiah, which in fact are very familiar words taken directly from Scripture. For now is Christ risen from the dead, the firstfruits of them that sleep. Since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. The trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? But thanks be to God, who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If God be for us, who can be against us? Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, and hath redeemed us to God by his blood, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Blessing and honor, glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. This Easter, I follow in the faith of my first confessors, my mother and father, along with two billion other people around the world, that nothing good will be lost, nothing evil will remain. In this week's lectionary, Isaiah prophesied that God will wipe away every tear from every face in every nation. Peter called this the restoration of all things. Paul called it the liberation of creation from bondage to decay and the redemption of our bodies. It's our Easter faith this Sunday. Thanks be to God. For books this week, we have a review by Debbie Thomas. The author is Barbara Kingsolver. The title of the novel, Flight Behavior, New York, Harper, 2012, 436 pages. As Barbara Kingsolver's seventh novel, Flight Behavior, begins, 28-year-old Delarobia Turnbow is racing up an Appalachian mountainside in sexy second-hand boots. She's about to throw her life away. Bored beyond endurance with her husband, her in-laws, and all the trials of life on a failing farm, she's headed to an illicit rendezvous on the mountaintop when a vision of glory stops her cold. 
She sees burning orange trees, their very limbs writhing. Though she can't find the words for what she's seeing, the alarming sight sends her fleeing back down the mountain, her lover forgotten, her soul shaken. Soon enough, we learn that Delarobia's mountain miracle is in fact a colony of migrating monarch butterflies, some 15 million of them, that's been thrown off its centuries-old flight plan by the chaotic weather patterns of a warming Earth. As Delarobia lives in a town where the concept of climate change is neither understood nor tolerated, the arrival of the butterflies raises all sorts of fascinating tensions between the townspeople and the many outsiders who come to see the unprecedented phenomenon. With deafness and courage, King Solver pits religion against science, urban elitism against rural know-how, education versus ignorance, and wealth against poverty. In the wrong hands, Fiction written to educate or to convey a social message can go flat fast. In Kingsolver's hands, however, the project succeeds beautifully, not least because her love for language, for the rich, deep artistry of prose, is apparent in every sentence. The novel also succeeds because the macro story of climate change and its consequences are offered to us at the far more interesting micro level in the small domestic dramas between husband and wife, mother and child, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. Two questions haunt the novel, each equally compelling. First, will the butterflies survive the catastrophic damage that human beings have wreaked on their natural habitat? And second, will Delarobia find a new flight plan for her own life, one that will ensure not only her survival, but also her thriving. The title of the book, Flight Behavior, by Barbara Kingsolver. For movies this week, we go to the country of Guatemala in a film called El Norte from 1983. This movie is 30 years old but its subject matter is even more important today than it was when it was made. In the little Guatemalan village of San Pedro, the military seizes the land of the Mayan peasants and terrorizes the villagers. They resent being tweeted as, treated as inferior laborers, but their efforts at resistance fail. The only way to survive seems to be to go El Norte, so this is what the teenagers Enrique and his sister Rosa do. After all, they've read the magazine Good Housekeeping for 10 years, so they know just how wonderful life in America will be. Well, maybe not, for dreams and reality are not the same thing. Their trek to Los Angeles by these undocumented immigrants is filled with humor and tragedy. The film brings to mind the ancient Hebrew commandment in Exodus 22, verse 21. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Not to mention contemporary political debates about what the United States should do with its 12 million so-called 
illegal immigrants. This film, El Norte, is in Spanish, Mayan, in English. And finally, for Easter Sunday, we've posted a poem by Edmund Spencer. Edmund Spencer lived from 1552 to 1599. The title, Amoretti, 58, Most Glorious Lord of Life. Most glorious Lord of Life, that on this day didst make thy triumph over death and sin, and having harrowed hell, didst bring away captivity thence captive us to win. This joyous day, dear Lord, with joy begin, and grant that we for whom thou didst die, being with thy dear blood clean washed from sin, may live forever in felicity, and that thy love we weighing worthily may likewise love thee for the same again. And for thy sake, that all like dear didst by, with love may one another entertain. So let us love, dear love, like as we ought. Love is the lesson which the Lord us taught. Edmund Spencer, Most Glorious Lord of Life. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For Sunday, April 5th, 2015, I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.